welcome to the Future of Work Hub's In Conversation With podcast. I'm Lucy Lewis, a partner in Lewis Silkin's employment team. And in this podcast series, I'm hosting exclusive discussions with innovators, business leaders, and thought leaders to explore their perspective on what the future of work holds. The pandemic has accelerated longer-term societal, economic, and technological trends, giving us a unique opportunity, a -a once-in-a-generation challenge to rethink who, how, what, and where we work. And today we're going to explore one of our key megatrends, demographics, and specifically in relation to gender. So we know that automation and advancements in AI technologies alongside the disruption caused by the pandemic is changing the nature of jobs, it's changing the demographics of the workplace. And I'm going to be considering what that means for gender balance and the future of work with our guest speaker today, Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. Aviva is the CEO of 21st, and 21st is one of the world's leading global consultancies focused on gender balance as a business and economic opportunity. So welcome, Aviva. Thank you, Lucy. Lovely to be with you. So I was going to start by asking you just to tell us a little bit about yourself, but also tell us what 21st does, you know, how and why gender balance is a business opportunity as we look forward to the future of work. Well, uh, my name's Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, which reveals a little bit my different national accents and balances. So I am Canadian, French, and Swiss, and I founded 21st now 15 years ago to address what was then a kind of obvious emerging trend was the rise of women into labor forces, talent pools, consumer bases, And 21st was created to accompany um, organizations that wanted to harness that trend and use it to enhance performance and an ability to reflect and build on the available talent pool and connect with the emerging consumer base. So that's what we've been doing for the last 15 years across the world, and I've worked in more than 40 countries on this topic to date. And tell us a bit about the 21st name and how you came to that. Well, the idea was to help companies move from the 20th to the 21st century while keeping them first uh, and accompanying these major trends that were happening. So we've done a lot of work on gender balance, which was one of the big shifts. We've also done a lot of work on nationality balance and increasingly on age balance to address some of the issues of our longevity challenges and aging populations. And and you talk about gender balance as a business opportunity. I think that's a really nice framing of it. Can you share a little bit more about why it's a business opportunity? Absolutely, because it was very obvious to me um, for all these years that I've been watching this topic that women were emerging, not as an interesting minority or um, evolving group, but as the majority of the educated talent pool. 60% of university graduates globally are now women. And they were just an ever-expanding share of consumer bases and customer pools, whether or not organizations were actually measuring that reality. Women we're making and are making the majority of decision uh, purchasing decision makings 
in an ever expanding range of sectors and learning how to connect with female customers has been a non-obvious challenge. Yeah, fascinating. And you talked about the name and you talked about moving to the 21st century. And of course, when we when we think about the 21st century, we're not going to be able to do that without looking back and um, reflecting on the impact of, of the pandemic. We know the pandemic is overlaying new challenges on top of long established challenges for women. So, you know, we've, we've heard a lot said about things like women taking the brunt of um, increased caring responsibilities, homeschooling. We know that women are more likely to be furloughed, have had their hours reduced, be made redundant because they're high in higher concentrations in sectors that have been really impacted by the pandemic. But it isn't all negative, is it? And I'm really interested in what you think the pandemic means for 21st message and the future of work, what the legacy of the pandemic will be for that. Uh, I couldn't agree more that it has been both a positive and a negative. So the negative, I think you've described very well. We know that unlike the last financial recession of 2008, where men were in the sectors that got really hit, this time around, women have been dominant in all the frontline sectors involved um, in the pandemic, whether they're health, education, uh, cleaning services, they've been really affected and stretched by the demands, they've become essential workers overnight, which is a, I think, very useful uh, reminder of how essential a lot of these sectors dominated by women are. And I think that one of the big shifts that you are seeing coming through this is the enhanced flexibility and embracing of technology to power flexibility so that it's no longer nine to five in the office that determines our workforces, but much more about output instead of input. And this is something that women have been asking and lobbying for for you know decades. Um, and I always suggest that, that we've kind of seen the Berlin Wall fall between the personal and the professional sides of life with the fact that now both men and women um, have done so much work with the visibility of their personal lives so much on display has, I think, uh, accelerated a shift in one year that nobody could have dreamt of. It's, yeah, really, really interesting and agree completely. It's one of the things we've been talking quite a lot about, that that move towards flexibility. The other, the other observation um, that I've had is it's given a platform, I think, to, to female leaders. My, I think my favourite um, COVID statistics is that countries with female leadership suffered six times fewer um, COVID-related deaths. Do you think there's been more of a platform for, for female leaders? Uh, I think what's new, what, what I find really interesting about this idea of evaluating female leaders, right, because there's obviously a certain uh, fear in many quarters that um, the emergence of women affects quality, or women aren't quite ready, or they're not quite good enough, or they're not quite committed enough. And I think what this crisis has shown is kind of like the very first time we've ever had a global report card on male versus female leadership in full view of everybody with the data. And the data was 
the, the ultimate data, life and death, right? And so I think what we've seen, and I wrote about this in an article in Forbes that went viral to uh, you know, 8 million people, um, that if you actually measure, it does seem to indicate that women-led countries outperformed male-led countries by a long shot. And I think that's only the tip of the iceberg because there's a growing amount of data on leadership and leadership competencies that are also beginning to skew in an interesting way, right? That show that women are perhaps actually outperforming on an ever-expanding range of these leadership competencies. This is all new. And what's nice about it is it's all data-driven. So I think I have always said data is a girl's best friend. Um, I think I'm going to be proved more right than I ever believed. I'm Yeah, I'm really pleased to hear it. And actually, that takes me to a point about action that I wanted to talk to you about. Because I think lots of people listening they want to be leading an organisation which is gender balanced. They just don't know how to achieve that. And I know um, when you've talked before, you've you've talked about some of those go-to steps, some of the things that businesses do to try and achieve more women in leadership positions. And, you know, I mean by that things like female mentoring, internal networking groups. They're not going to move the dial quickly enough. So I'd love to hear from you what you think can work, what should work, and what companies can be doing to affect action? Well, I think the first step is a little back, bit back to your very first question is, how do you actually think about this topic? Um, and I think one of the challenges we keep finding is that most companies frame this as a nice to have, right? Oh, yeah, an ethical issue. You know, we, we've got to be fair. We've got to be nice to the ladies, right? Um, and I think that underestimates what we're actually talking about. This is a millennial shift in gender roles, in what men and women do, and in the economic opportunity that women are now the majority of many labor forces, talent pools, and customer bases, which means that for a lot of organizations, this is not a nice to have. It's do or die. This is your future talent and your future consumer, customer, stakeholder, legislator, regulator, decision maker. And any company and leader that doesn't yet understand that and really is skilled in how to connect with that reality will un underperform in the future. And I think the challenge that we have is that too many organizations still are fiddling at the sidelines to me, the issue of gender balance is kind of like the issue of digital or AI. It's not that you need a little department or group taking a look at your digital strategy, right? Um, it's not like you need a little women's network talking about, are you being nice to women? It's if gender balance doesn't completely traverse all of your business functions and areas, including, by the way, digital, then you're pro probably programming a, you know, an old obsolete view that has biases and imbalances baked in, which just won't be future ready. So the idea of how this should be seen is as a strategic priority, as it is in 
all the countries and companies that have gender balance, it's up at the top of the CEO's agenda, not down in the diversity department's to-do list, but up on the CEO and exco's uh, lists of priorities, accountabilities, they're measured on whether or not they've managed to gender balance their divisions and teams, uh, and they get a performance kick out of that. And they're skilled at knowing how to build that balance. They've become what we call gender bilingual. They're actually skilled at working across and leveraging the potential of gender differences, just as most organizations have become culturally competent and globalized, they've become very skilled at working across cultures and markets. The same is true on gender. One of the things that we we talk quite a lot about, as, as employment lawyers particularly, on this question of change and how you affect change is, is what role should policymakers have in that? You know, should policymakers, should the government be taking targeted interventions to overcome barriers? And by that, I mean things like just totally rip up and restart, remodel shared parental leave, um, push forward on initiatives like, for example, um, all jobs should be able to be advertised as flexible. Do you think that is the role of government and policymakers, that we do need to see more of a policy-related shift? Well, I think it depends what kind of outcome you want and how quickly. Uh, And I think, again, we have a report card globally now on this kind of question because we we have countries that have legislated and we have countries that haven't. So it's really interesting to compare where they now stand. So um, there are, I think, now seven countries in Europe that have introduced quotas about gender balance on boards. Um, France was one of those countries. They're now, I think, at 45% women, 55% men on boards um, a decade after that legislation, which was introduced, I think, by Norway, which is also balanced. The UK put in kind of a voluntary guidelines of what they would like to do with with a much lesser goal, actually, which was 30% women. And, you know, they've achieved that, but just recently and with a bit of fluctuation around that number. uh, And interestingly, I just wrote another piece recently in Forbes, how France legislated just last week um, that they will now follow Germany in legislating quotas on gender balance on executive teams and leadership pipelines. Well, now we're opening up a whole new uh, kettle of fish here. because they found that the progress has been too slow. So do I think policy is useful and regulation? If the private sector doesn't adapt in the timeframes that most governments have been talking about this, you know, suggesting nicely that it's a, an issue, introducing legislation like some of the pay gap stuff, um, I think, yes, a policy alignment between public sector and private sector in driving change, I think is absolutely essential to get it done. And even we're seeing America, which is, you know, not always been um, pushing on the regulatory front with the Biden commission coming in with a gender policy unit that reports directly into the president. That's new, right? 
And it just shows, I think, that in a number of pretty significant countries, this issue of gender balance is rising up the strategic agenda. Now, in the time we've got, I wanted to take you back a little bit, widen the lens a bit, because one of the things that we've been talking about um, on this podcast series is how the pandemic is going to impact business models. You know, how is it going to impact capitalism? We had a really fascinating discussion series in collaboration with the RSA looking at that, looking at whether actually we're going to see the pandemic as a catalyst for moving moving beyond shareholder value and start focusing on humanizing business, responsible business. Um, and I know that 21st have talked about that. I know that they've talked about this idea of conscious capitalism as a model for the future. And I'd, I'd love it if you could share a bit about that and what you think that really means. Well, I think conscious capitalism is giving up on a really tired 30 years of Milton Friedman's and uh, you know, economics that the only thing that counts is shareholder value. I think that led especially the Anglo-Saxon world down a very narrow rabbit hole of one measure of success. We have the same challenge at a country level with GDP being the only measure of national success, which means you know we can sell nuclear arms and have fantastic improvement on gender uh, on uh, GDP, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what's best for the greatest number. So I think conscious capitalism is inviting companies to be more involved in the world in which they now operate. They can't ignore uh, employee rights, shareholder rights, but also stakeholders in every market where they operate, whether it's employing people or taking out precious resources. We're seeing that very much going on in the discussion with the pharmaceutical uh, companies now and this whole how globalized can we get these vaccines to be. I think conscious capitalism is Doing to both, um, you know, CSR, corporate social responsibility, used to be a little bit like women off on the sidelines. And we're now seeing that unless it crosses and is transversal and a top strategy to every part of what companies do, they're probably not going to survive very well in a world where everything is going to become more transparent and accountability on these measures is increasingly important to an ever-expanding range of stakeholders. So yes, we're moving into much more challenging times, much more transparent, and I think democratizations of um, who's going to evaluate the performance of the companies. And I think that's going to be a really good thing. And presumably that the, the model of cap conscious capitalism is a model in which gender balance becomes more important, more critical, more urgent. I think um, gender balance is al always both an output and an input, right? I think it's the easiest way to achieve, to reach change and conscious capitalism is if 50% of your uh, employee base is gender balanced, right? 50-50 or 40-40-20, if we're talking now um, multiple, uh, multiple genders. And if you're serving customers that are equally balanced, that's when you're going to have success. Fascinating. Thank you. I've got one more question to ask you, and it's a question that I've asked all our guests on this podcast series, and it's about what you personally think 
is going to be the biggest and most radical change for the future of work? What's the thing that we're going to take forward with us from the pandemic? I do think the mo- the thing that will be most noticeable and affect us most um, is the technology-enabled ability now generalized. It used to be true for just the senior people, right? We A lot of people have been able to work wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted for some time, but it used to be just the very top of the pyramid. And now it's been generalized to uh, an ever-expanding range of sectors, which I think is going to give globalization an extra kick. It's going to give gender balance an extra kick. And I hope it's going to also give sustainability issues an extra kick, which is In my view, what I've always been preaching is the four W's that are interdependent and the big shifts we're looking at, web, weather, world, and women, technological change, sustainability priorities, globalization, and the rise of women. Um, These are all been incredibly accelerated by this crisis. And if we get the good side of them coming out, they're going to power us through into much sunnier days. That is a very uplifting finish. Thank you very much. And thank you for such a thought-provoking discussion, Aviva. It's been really interesting. My pleasure, Lucy. Anytime. Um, If anybody would like to to find out more about um, Aviva and 21st, please do go to their website, which is www.20-first.com. Thank you.